Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted December 18th, 2020, titled, Does God Exist? Many Absolute Proofs. Millions believe God exists. Few have proof or even no proof exists. Are you saying most God believers have insufficient reasons to do so? Have you proven God exists? Or do you hope, suspect, feel, believe, think He does? None of the above. Must the answers be accepted on faith? He's sounding remarkably anti-faith for a Christian speaker. This series covers the existence of God and will be among the most important you ever watch. In under two hours, you will see it is impossible for God not to exist. Impossible. All doubt of His existence will vanish. Vanish. You will also see how God describes atheists. He's probably not tapping that thumbs up button. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. If you're new to the channel, please take a second to tap on the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when new science, theology, and news videos come out. While I'm always paying attention to the latest content from influential creationists and apologists, a video from a few years back recently came to my attention. The World to Come. The Restored Church of God presents David C. Pack, author of 80 books and booklets. 80 books and booklets? Let's see. David has seven books listed on Amazon. So that's 71 booklets? About a 10 to 1 ratio? What's the conversion scale from a booklet to a tract? I'm unsure how impressive this should or shouldn't be. But I do know a little bit about YouTube videos. And this one has been watched over 7 million times. I mean, it's no baby shark dance. But 7 million is impressive by any measure. Well done. Read by countless and growing numbers. If the number can't be counted, how can we know if it's growing? In a violent age full of war, famine, pollution, disease, disasters, and economic uncertainty, and ever-worsening bad news. How cute. This video is from 2015. Little did they know what 2020 would bring. And now, David C. Pack. Almost 50 years ago, I learned of absolute proof God exists. Absolute proof is a phrase normally reserved for the realm of mathematics. I don't know of anything at all in science that is considered absolutely proven. David is creating a tall order for himself. Also, it seems selfish to have kept such a proof to himself for 50 years. But at least we're here now. My studies lasted two and a half years. I came to realize I did not have to accept his existence on faith. Science has learned much more and the case for God is now airtight. This broadcast begins presenting numerous absolute proofs God does exist. Some proofs will amaze you, others will inspire you, still others will surprise or even excite you. All of them will fascinate you with their simplicity. You will soon never again doubt God's existence. In fact, just part one will convince you. We're already watching the video, Dave. No need to pre-hype yourself like it's the WWE. We're in. Just part one will convince us. 
we will never again doubt God's existence. Let's go. A second great question is unavoidable and inseparable from the question of God's existence. Whether there is life on earth because of blind, dumb luck through evolution, or because of special creation by a supreme being. Well, natural selection keeps biological evolution from being a process describable as dumb luck. That said, mutations have an element of chance, so I'll give David the benefit of the doubt that he'll clarify later. After all, he studied this for two years. That's like half a bachelor's degree. But his question itself is a false dichotomy. It's not evolution or special creation. There is a third option of special creation by way of evolution. Frankly, a view held by most Christians today. Most people assume evolution is true, just as millions assume God's existence. I'm glad you think that people shouldn't just assume God's existence. I also studied evolution versus creation in depth during the same period I sought to prove God's existence. Kind of a double major, I guess. What did you learn? I learned it takes far more faith to believe the intellectually fashionable evolutionary myth than that God exists. In fact, I learned evolution is based entirely on faith because no true facts or proof have ever been found to support it. So again, you're saying faith is necessarily bad. And all the lines of evidence that support evolution, from transitional species in the fossil record, homology, phylogeny, genetic sequencing, common endogenous retrovirus sites, the fusion of human chromosome 2, all of that you've dismissed as not true facts somehow, despite the fact that these are simple, relatively non-controversial observations that can be verified independently and repeatedly, and are generally accepted even by organizations like Answers in Genesis as facts, even though they would dispute the interpretations? What exactly is a fact in your world, David? Faith does play a role in the life of a Christian, for the one who truly wants to seek God and learn to please him. Faith is vital to a Christian. So, faith is good again? I'm confused. Now, before starting this study, remember, assumptions don't count. Neither do superstitious myths or traditions based on ignorance. What can be known from science? Only accept facts. Think rationally and clearly. Then accept what can be proven. This is excellent advice. Accept what can be proven. Carry on. The following excerpts are from a Wall Street Journal article, Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God. It demonstrates why it is impossible for God not to exist. It's long, but powerful. Lest anyone gets the impression that this powerful article is the kind of hard-hitting investigative journalism that the Wall Street Journal used to be known for at various times in history, David's actually going to be walking us through an opinion piece written in 2014 by Eric Metaxas. If you're wondering where you've heard that name, Eric is an evangelical radio personality who just a few months ago in August 2020 punched an unarmed political protester in the back of the head for looking menacing. Since November, Metaxas has also been leading the charge in the election fraud campaign for Donald Trump. Now, Eric's current politics have no bearing on the validity of his thoughts we're about to hear, but keep in mind that he has no science background of any kind and is actively demonstrating a commitment to ideology ahead of what can be demonstrated with evidence. The reading of the article begins with hypothetical odds for planets with life-promoting properties, then is indictment of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence project. But as years passed, the silence from the rest of the universe was deafening. As of 2014, researchers have discovered precisely nothing. 
This is already an enormous statement. How is this an enormous statement in comparison to the 13 billion years our universe has existed and the 90 billion light years of space it covers, listening for a mere 60 years from our single pale blue dot would be like looking at your floor for a fraction of a second and declaring that tigers don't exist because you didn't see one there. The odds against life in the universe are simply astonishing. Grasp what you are reading. I thought we were taking emotions out of this and concentrating on facts, David. Being astonished is irrelevant. Can every one of those many parameters have been perfect by accident? At what point is it fair to admit that science suggests we cannot be the result of random forces? Doesn't assuming that an intelligence created these perfect conditions... Assuming that an intelligence created these conditions? Hmm. What were we supposed to remember about assumptions? Remember, assumptions don't count. Right. Doesn't assuming that an intelligence created these perfect conditions require far less faith than believing a life-sustaining Earth just happened to beat the inconceivable odds to come into being? I'm guessing that you and I would not agree on how to calculate said odds. But very low probability events happen all the time thanks to high repetition. The odds of winning the lottery are inconceivably low. And yet we are not surprised to regularly hear that someone won the lottery. And when it comes to planets, well, let's use your numbers. Given the roughly octillion, one followed by 27 zeros, planets in the universe, there should have been about septillion, one followed by 24 zeros, planets capable of supporting life. Exactly. In fact, just last month, this paper factored in the latest data from the Kepler and Gaia missions to estimate 300 million habitable planets in our Milky Way galaxy alone. A similar sun to ours, a similar composition, capable of supporting water, and a similar distance from its sun. This isn't just statistical hypotheticals. Over 4,000 such planets have been actually individually identified, with another 3,000 awaiting confirmation. All this in our tiny corner of a vast universe. These conditions are practically routine, hardly inconceivable, proof of nothing. The fine-tuning necessary for life to exist on a planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist at all. For example, astrophysicists now know that the values of the four fundamental forces, gravity, the electromagnetic force, and the strong and weak nuclear forces, were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. I'm going to need a citation for that, Mr. Metaxas. As these are all properties of energy which cosmology posits existed in a singularity before the Big Bang, if before the Big Bang is a coherent way to describe it, the nature of these four fundamental forces were likely similarly predetermined. And it hasn't been demonstrated that they could be different. They may well be necessary and unalterable. Until that is demonstrated, even the concept of fine-tuning is entirely hypothetical. And it should go without saying that hypotheticals are not proof. Fred Hoyle, the astronomer who coined the term Big Bang, said his atheism was greatly shaken at these developments. Indeed, Fred Hoyle coined the phrase Big Bang in 1949 as a deliberately pejorative and misrepresentative title for the idea, as Hoyle favored an opposing universal steady-state model over the now-familiar expanding universe one. Hoyle's mocking move here was not unlike a skeptic referring to the Christian god as a sky fairy. Of course, history proved Hoyle to be on the wrong side of science in this matter, 
In fact, he continued to hitch his wagon to an array of hypotheses that were ultimately disproven, like an extraterrestrial origin for the AIDS disease, outright denial of Archaeopteryx, and a proposed link between influenza and sunspots. In the end, Hoyle's contributions to society were primarily in science fiction rather than science. But by all means, let's hear what Hoyle thinks. He later wrote that a common sense interpretation of the facts... Common sense is another way of saying personal intuition. Am I supposed to accept someone's personal intuition here? What can be known from science? Only accept facts. Right. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. I can't find any work Hoyle has done on this, showing these calculations he's referring to. Perhaps he was too busy investigating space aids to publish them. Theoretical physicist Paul Davies has said that the appearance of design is overwhelming. I can't actually find this quote from Paul Davies, but if Paul Davies' quotes are being presented as proof, allow me to enter this for the record. First of all, I don't believe in any sort of God that uh, the people who are viewing this video might uh, have in mind, uh, and nor did Einstein. Scientists believe that the universe can be explained by laws of nature, uh, so any uh, idea of a cosmic magician who can uh, intervene and prod around, move atoms about, tinker with genomes and so on, is complete anathema to scientists. Until 1967, naval astronomers observed the Earth's motion in relation to the heavens to accurately measure time. All U.S. clocks were set in relation to these precise measurements. It was God who made this master clock of the universe. He set the heavens in motion and man learned to use its wonderful accuracy. Creator God or not, the notion that the movement to the heavenly bodies is an accurate timekeeper is ridiculous. The amount of time it takes the Earth to do a full revolution is getting longer and longer. When the dinosaurs walked the Earth, it was only 23 and a half hours, and many hours shorter than that when the Earth was young. The amount of time it takes the Earth to travel one rotation around the Sun is also getting longer and longer. Perhaps you've heard of leap seconds that we need to keep adding to the clock to accommodate for the imprecision of solar time. These rotations have some general utility for timekeeping, sure, but nothing at all resembling divine design. But God's great clock holds more marvels. In 1968, scientists built an atomic clock that uses cesium-133 atoms because they vibrate at the rate of 9,192,631,770 times per second. This is accurate to within one second every 30 million years. Imagine your watch was that accurate. Cesium-133 atoms never vary a single vibration. They are steady, constant, reliable, and cannot be an accident of nature that just happens to always turn out exactly the same. God had to design the complexity and reliability of these atoms. No honest mind can believe otherwise. No honest mind can believe otherwise? This is merely an emergent property of the arrangement of molecules we call cesium-133. Just as the state at specific temperatures and pressures remains consistent for the arrangement of molecules we call H2O and water, or the property of light that it travels at a constant speed in a vacuum. Specific properties emerge necessarily from specific atomic arrangements. Why would it be more reasonable to think that a supernatural being is actively, constantly fighting against unknown forces to keep the properties reliable than to just accept that materials just have the properties that they have. 
Are we to believe that very sophisticated, humanly devised watches required the effort and ingenuity of skilled, intelligent men to create them, but clocks of far greater sophistication, precision, and design developed on their own? How utterly foolish to believe. You've seen absolute proof only the greatest watchmaker, God, could have devised these greatest watches. Materials have properties. That's not the same as claiming they developed on their own, or developed at all. Things have the properties they have isn't really proof of anything. This is equally consistent with a designed or undesigned universe. Or at least David would need to demonstrate for us why undesigned things can't have properties. What is the truth of modern science regarding the origin of all matter in the universe? Do scientists claim it has always existed? Or have they determined there was a moment in time when all matter came into existence? The latter answer is yes. No. The answer is no. But what is the proof? The first law of thermodynamics is matter and energy can be neither created nor destroyed. No natural processes can alter either matter or energy in this way. This means there is no new matter or energy coming into existence and no matter or energy passing out of existence. Exactly. Saying the universe came into existence from nothing violates the first law of thermodynamics. Just one reason why the scientific community does not claim that the universe came into existence out of nothing. If we're talking about our universe, it sprang from a singularity that existed before the Big Bang. Not from nothing. Maybe David should have spent a little longer on his research, because he is vastly misrepresenting the science here. This law plainly demonstrates that the universe and all matter and energy within it must have had a divine origin, a specific moment in which it was created by someone all-powerful. Far from it. This law plainly demonstrates that energy is eternal. It wasn't created. This creation notion is the one that violates the scientific law. There was a time when uranium could not have existed because it always breaks down in a highly systematic and controlled way. Not stable like lead or other elements, uranium breaks down. So there was a specific moment when all radioactive elements came into existence. It doesn't follow from anything observed that all radioactive elements came into existence at the same moment. I mean... Every second, new radioactive carbon-14 isotopes are being formed. When nitrogen atoms of the upper atmosphere collide with neutrons produced by the interaction of high-energy cosmic rays within our atmosphere, heavier elements like uranium are formed in supernovas, which have happened throughout the universe's history and will continue to happen for billions more years. Not all at once at some past moment. This argument from David is baffling. Remember... All of them, uranium, radium, thorium, radon, polonium, protactinium, and others, have not existed forever. This represents absolute proof that matter came into existence. In other words, matter has not always existed. Well, no. Radioactive elements are made of matter. Chocolate cake is also made of matter. This cake didn't always exist and will at some point cease to exist. That says nothing about the matter that makes up the cake or the matter that makes up radioactive elements. David is very confused. Matter could not have come into existence by itself. I don't claim that it did. No rational person could possibly believe the entire universe, including all radioactive elements, that prove there was a specific time of beginning gradually came into existence by itself. I mean, you do accept that matter and energy reconfigure from one form to another, right? 
The radioactive elements you spoke of are a great example. Uranium becomes lead. This is pretty basic stuff. Try to build something, anything from nothing. Even with your creative power engaged in the effort, you would never be able. You cannot, in a hundred lifetimes of trying, produce a single thing from nothing. First, you'd have to demonstrate nothing. That there could even be a state of nothing from whence to start building. Nothing has never been observed. Again, David is putting forth a hypothetical. And again, hypotheticals cannot serve as proof. Can any doubter believe everything in the entirety of the universe, in all its exquisite detail, came into existence completely by itself? Be honest. Again, accept facts. This is proof that the natural physical realm demands the existence of a great creator. The natural physical realm demands a natural physical realm. So far, this creator remains hypothetical and seemingly superfluous. Occam's razor tells us not to add unnecessary assumptions. Remember, assumptions don't count. I remember. The second law of thermodynamics is best summarized by saying everything moves toward disorder, a condition known as entropy. Well, the second law of thermodynamics is better summarized by saying that as energy is transferred or transformed, more and more of it is wasted. Things get confusing if you try to use the word disorder or entropy. In thermodynamics, Entropy is the measure of a system's thermal energy per unit temperature that is unavailable for doing useful work. But unfortunately, outside of thermodynamics, entropy more colloquially describes a general state of chaos. In thermodynamics, entropy is a measure of molecular disorder, or general randomness, of a system. Outside of thermodynamics, the word disorder conjures the image of a child's messy room, a lack of tidiness or organization. Creationists like to equivocate between the scientific and commonplace meaning of these words to pretend that the second law says things that it simply does not. Remember, evolutionists teach that everything is constantly evolving into a higher and more complex order. Not at all. Biological evolution teaches that organisms will adapt to best survive their environment. Because environments change in unpredictable ways, the idea of higher or lower evolution has no meaning. And complexity has no inherent survival advantage over simplicity. Again, I must question how much David really learned in his years of studying. If water on a stove is at 150 degrees Fahrenheit and the burner is turned off, the temperature drops instead of rises. It moves toward colder, not hotter. But the temperature of the room gets hotter, not colder. What's the point of this again? Even evolutionists admit that the theory of evolution and this law are completely incompatible. No. People who accept the science of biological evolution would not agree that it is incompatible with thermodynamics. The second law doesn't prevent energy from organizing, from overcoming entropy on a temporary basis. If the second law of thermodynamics prevented biological evolution, it would also prevent snowflakes, photosynthesis, or diamonds. God or not, these things obviously happen. Notice, regarding the second law of thermodynamics, universally accepted scientific law which states that all things left to themselves will tend to run down. Well done, David. You've corrected your own error. Things run down when left to themselves. When something intervenes, things can organize for a while. That's what life is, a temporary organizing agent. See? No contradiction at all.
It would hardly be possible to conceive of two more completely opposite principles than this principle of entropy increase and the principle of evolution. Each is precisely the converse of the other. I guess you don't see. This line of thinking argues against the concept of life itself, not against evolution, not for or against God either. As Aldous Huxley defined it, Did you want people to confuse writer and philosopher Aldous Huxley with his more famous grandfather Thomas Huxley? The zoologist whose advocacy for evolution earned him the nickname Darwin's Bulldog? Evolution involves a continual increase of order, of organization, of size, of complexity. No offense to the grandson, but that's completely not what biological evolution is. Evolution is just as likely to produce smaller and less complex organisms. No wonder David is confused. We have established that creation demands a creator. Have we, though? Now some amazing scientific proofs of creation. Evolution is shot full of inconsistencies. That's not how this works. Conclusively disproving evolution would do nothing to prove creationism. I thought this was supposed to be a video proving God exists, not disproving something unrelated. Evolutionists have seized on many theories within the overall theory in an attempt to explain the origins of plants, animals, the heavens, and the earth. Over and over, these theorists try to explain how life evolved from inanimate material into more complex life forms until reaching the pinnacle, human beings. The theory of evolution is an explanation for the variety of life on Earth. It doesn't attempt to explain the origin of life. That would be the hypotheses related to abiogenesis. This may not be an important distinction to you, David, but it is actually important. Also, humans aren't the pinnacle of evolution. Since there's no directionality, no consideration for complexity, only survival. If other species outlive humans, then those will be a new pinnacle, even if we're talking about cockroaches. Yet, as one geologist wrote, it must be significant that nearly all the evolutionary stories I learned as a student have been debunked. Evolution is biology. How much biology did a geologist learn as a student? Also, Derek V. Ager was born in 1923, so I presume his student years were in the 1940s? That's 10 years before the discovery of DNA. I imagine a lot about biology classes changed after the discovery of DNA. Is this vague 50-year-old anecdote from a geologist supposed to count as irrefutable biology proof? Here is one example of a debunked theory. Many evolutionists have tried to argue that humans are 99% similar chemically to apes, and blood precipitation tests do indicate that the chimpanzee is people's closest relative. I've never heard of an argument from chemical similarity in my whole life. So we see on the screen that this claim comes from the father of modern young earth creationism, Henry Morris, and his book, The Twilight of Evolution, which was first published in 1963, nearly 60 years ago. And Morris seems to have got this information from this paper from 1925, nearly 100 years ago. This was 28 years before Francis Crick's DNA discovery, and five years before sliced bread was sold in stores. Really, David? Your disproof of evolution is to point out that a nearly 100-year-old comparison method isn't particularly meaningful today? Or you may be hoping that your audience will hear 99% similar chemically, and in their mind conflate that with 99% similar genetically. Vastly different concepts. The latter is why virtually no professional biologists doubt evolution. 
Yet regarding this, we must observe the following. Milk chemistry indicates that the donkey is man's closest relative. Cholesterol level tests indicate that the garter snake is man's closest relative. Maybe that's why science stopped publishing on this nearly a hundred years ago. More people should weep for evolutionists. But Christians who deliberately misrepresent science like David is? What should we do for them? Let's consider the incredible complexity of life. Everyone has witnessed explosions. Have you ever seen one that was orderly? Or one that created a watch or a clock? Or a single thing of exquisite design instead of chaos and destruction? If you threw a million hand grenades, you would see them produce chaos and destruction a million times. There would never be an exception. The theory of evolution posits exactly zero explosions. So I have no idea what David is trying to say here. Maybe he means the Big Bang. But that's an expansion of space-time and not related to biology. Dr. B.G. Ranganathan said, The probability of life originating from accident is comparable to the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a printing shop. Not even close. An explosion is a one-time randomizer. Evolution involves generation after generation, where beneficial mutations are kept and harmful changes die out. While still a wildly imperfect analogy, it'd be closer to a printing shop that creates thousands of new books every day, but starting each day with the most correct letters from the previous day. With that method, it wouldn't take many generations to get there. Sadly, David made me force my improved analogy to have an end goal. I just want to be clear that evolution has no end goal. Consider the common mouse trap. Everyone is familiar with it, and most have used one. Which part of a mousetrap could you remove and it would still work? The answer, none. While ingenious, it is still a very simple mechanism. Since the mousetrap cannot be made any simpler, it represents a condition called irreducible complexity. Perhaps David is unaware that he's chosen the exact same example that was put on trial in 2005 in the Kitzmiller versus Dover case, where this notion of irreducible complexity was considered in the courts. Miller arrived at court making an unusual fashion statement. As an example of what irreducible complexity means, advocates of intelligent design like to point to a very common machine, the mousetrap. That this whole machine is completely useless until all the parts are in place. Well, that, that turns out not to be true. And I'll give you an example. What I have right here is a mousetrap from which I've removed two of the five parts. I still have the base plate, the spring, and the hammer. Now, you can't catch any mice with this, so it's not a very good mousetrap. But it turns out that despite the missing parts, it makes a perfectly good, if somewhat inelegant, tie clip. And when we look at the favorite examples for irreducible complexity and the bacterial flagellum is a perfect example we find the molecular equivalent of my tie clip which is we see parts of the machine missing two three four maybe even twenty parts but still fulfilling a perfectly good purpose that could be favored by evolution and that's why the irreducible complexity argument falls apart ultimately irreducible complexity lost the case and was deemed to be non-scientific by the Christian judge. Now, courts don't actually decide scientific matters, but this was a hard loss for a non-compelling notion. What are the implications of this? Charles Darwin, in his famous work, The Origin of Species, framed a giant problem for him and all evolutionists. 
If it could be demonstrated, he wrote, that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Those are his words. They are. And then he spent the entire next chapter demonstrating exactly how complex organs can be formed by numerous successive slight modifications, validating his theory. Too bad David didn't read a little bit further. The next part of this series will continue examining irreducible complexity and more powerful proof of the existence of God. There is much more evidence coming. But David, you promised that just part one will convince you. And I'm still not convinced. Until next time, this is David C. Pack saying goodbye, friends. Well, I'm not sure there will be a next time, David. All you did today was quote Eric Metaxas misrepresenting cosmology, talk about clocks, misunderstand and misapply both the first and second laws of thermodynamics, then top it off with a few jabs at evolution from a pre-DNA era, even though disproving evolution is irrelevant to the existence of God. I don't have high hopes for part two, but maybe if my viewers want me to cover it, I will. Let me know in the comments. And tap on the thumbnail on the screen now to see me address even more God-motivated science misrepresentation claims, and I'll see you over there. Later. Later.